transmitted live across the Atlantic 3,000 miles and five hours backwards in time. We are now getting your sound clearly and we are looking forward with great anticipation to seeing your program. And welcome to another edition of Match Report. I'm Jack here with Manny. How's it going, man? It's going good, man. It's going good. I had a pretty busy weekend. I traveled to Holland, landed in uh, Eindhoven, um, and then had some meetings with some football clubs, really, really constructive meetings, and hopefully can uh, do some business over the transfer window. So yeah, quite a productive weekend. And yourself? So you were there on behalf of your existing clients or you were seeking new clients? Um, on behalf of my existing clients, but also usually leading up to a transfer window, um, I try to have meetings with sports directors across different clubs, across you know the different leagues to understand you know the kind of players that are looking for, what players and the positions they're trying to move on for the summer window, um, build that good relationship so that you know when you give them that phone call in a couple months to say, hey, I've got a a young right winger that's looking for a club, they're a lot more receptive because one, you identified that's a position that they need and also you've already built that that relationship with the sporting director. So yeah, I've got got a few of those lined up, going to a couple um, Portuguese clubs as well over the next month, as well as France. So be a lot of traveling for me. Well, it's a good <laughs> thing one of us has some actual experience in the professional football world. You're a football agent. I'm a guy who sits on my couch and watches <laughs> matches, but <laughs> it's not far off, to That's be honest. Value add. <laughs> it's not far <laughs> yeah, off. Fair uh, well, it was a good. It was a good Sunday for watching matches. Good weekend overall. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, the headliner uh, for the English game this weekend was the League Cup final. Also, the Car- Carabao Energy Cup. Fiesta. Um, it was Chelsea and Liverpool meeting again as they met a couple of years ago in 2022 in what was an absolute snooze of a game that year. Went to It was nil-nil, went to penalties. This year, a little bit more going on, but mm-hmm. mostly of the comedic variety as someone who with a healthy distaste for Chelsea Football Club, I, I did enjoy <laughs> how it ended up at the end um, with Virgil van Dijk getting his second-headed goal of the game, except this one counted Mm. in added time, extra time. Uh, You know, what were your takeaways from a match that, again, did not maybe set the world on fire, uh, but did become a comedy event for those of us uh, who are against the Blues from London? (laughs) Yeah, exactly that. You know, with finals, they can be quite, quite edgy, quite tight. Um, And with Chelsea, they're not a great free free-scoring team, whereas Liverpool are, but they had so many injuries, had a lot of their fringe players, youngsters playing, and you thought this was a really good opportunity for Pochettino to get some some good grace, you know, uh, as a manager and, and, and win some silverware. They had a far more experience and, and I guess, a, a better team on paper, definitely in terms of value. But, yeah, they were, for me, they were outclassed, uh, they were outmatched in, in the game. Um, Liverpool had the better chances, they had a couple opportunities and got a disallowed goal from Sterling, um, Chelsea themselves. But I mean, going into a game like this, they were they were favourites, and to not capitalise on it's not very often you're going to get such a weakened Liverpool side, and to walk away with nothing, it's yeah, it's, it's comical. 
Yeah, I thought Chelsea were incredibly poor for the first 25, 27 minutes of this one. Uh, you had Malogusto, I think, put the ball out of play with a poor touch at least two or three times in the opening exchanges. In general, Chelsea, it looked like the moment was getting to them uh, for the first few minutes out there on the Wembley pitch. Mm-hmm. Maybe understandable considering the average age of this squad. They are quite young. They were themselves missing Thiago Silva, who's basically the only player, along with Raheem Sterling, who has any experience in this kind of match. Uh, but once uh, there was a turning point, I think, with when uh, Caicedo, Moises Caicedo, went in hard and I think quite late and with quite a nasty challenge that sent Ryan Gravenberg mm-hmm. off the pitch on a stretcher. Uh, the, the ESPN commentary team on this side of the pond sort of dismissed out of hand the idea that there was anything nefarious with this tackle but I Mm. thought you know I probably would not have sent him off if I was uh, the referee probably wouldn't have gone straight red but he is late and leaves studs on the man well after the ball is gone I mean it seems like a yellow card tackle at the very least yeah it was dangerous play and whether it was intentional or not he has gone in late um, and, you know, I, th- I think the commentary over here from Sky Sports was that he's got his eyes on the ball the whole time. There wasn't really any intent or intention to catch the player. But at the end of the day, leaving your foot in that position studs up, like you said, it- it's dangerous, you know, and to get away with nothing is it's and, you know, I, I'm not sure if they looked at it well enough, uh, VAR, but he he was he was very fortunate with the decision. And, you know, the player is, is now injured and looks could potentially be a serious injury. Yeah, I mean, the Liverpool injury list is now unbelievable to think about. Uh, Mm. They had a very star-studded, Now, I guess it wasn't even the bench, it was a section of the stands that they had to (laughs) rent out for their their injured superstars. And on the actual bench for Liverpool was what I can only describe as a collection of broccoli hair TikTokers. I mean, that's all these 18-year-old kids sitting there. But, you know, in sort of a similar way, I can't even laugh at Chelsea that much because it's similar to what Klopp, Jurgen Klopp, the manager, did when they came to Arsenal, uh, the Emirates Stadium for the FA Cup. Klopp got away with bringing on all these kids again. You know, mm-hmm. he's almost laughing to himself as he runs out of another cup tie as the winner, having played kids that, you know, they've never pulled on the jersey before that I know of. Uh, and they go out on a cup final and they get it over the line. Yeah. And his his brilliance or his magic seems to be working. Um, and I hate to say it, but a comparison is quite similar to Ferguson where Fergie always seemed to get the best out of these fringe players and, and youngsters. And you remember Federico Macheda getting that winning goal against Villa, you know, during the title run for us. You're seeing, you know, Connor Bradley coming in and, and looking like he, you know, he deserves to play in that right right back spot. You know, your Javier Elliott steps up, you know, from time to time. Um, I like their centre back Quenza as well. So it's almost like maybe the players really just want to do their best now for Klopp with it being his his final season and that extra bit of motivation is just passing through the whole squad and into the youngsters and they're probably just playing without any fear you know that's that's the added bonus of playing young youngsters is there's there's no fear there's, there's no history for them to go off to to be worried about you know the game and they're just enjoying themselves um but again it, it needs to 
it needs to stop because this could really become a season where Liverpool could win a double. You know, that didn't look like it was going to be be the case, you know, at the beginning of the season. Um, but for for as well as they played, like you said, Chelsea were quite poor. Um, they were always looking for that, that counter-attack um, and just hoping that Cole Palmer could produce something. I think Sterling wasn't as involved as he, he should have been. Um, the more senior players, which there wasn't, you know, that many of them, but the more senior players didn't really put a foothold in the game. Um, Enzo Fernandez and um, Conor Gallagher and, and Caicedo in that midfield, I just didn't think they imposed themselves enough to really give themselves a foothold in the game to to get a result. Yeah, I think this was the power of culture, something that you know Arsenal and Man United fans have become very aware of in recent years. What is the culture at the training ground? What is the culture around the club that the players can feel? And I just don't think that Chelsea have anything close to the culture that that Liverpool have in terms of consistent, high-level excellence, uh, top-level play. Hmm. Uh, They just couldn't match it. I mean, you look at the – Chelsea had plenty of players to bring on, and it's Mikhailo Mudrik, who you have no faith in whatsoever. Uh, some really poor performances. I th- I think Cole Palmer, as usual, was basically the only one to write home about. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned uh, Connor Gallagher. He broke through at one point, was played through well by Cole Palmer, I believe. He's one-on-one with the keeper. I never believed for a single second that he was going was to score. Yeah. Because he just doesn't have that technical quality, or it didn't really feel like the confidence in his technical ability to beat... Uh, Kilman uh, uh, Kelleher, which whose name I probably butchered, but <laughs> uh, who some people had as the man of the match because he made a number of good stops, including from a Cole Palmer uh-huh. volley at one point from pretty point blank range. But yeah, Raheem Sterling, I wasn't convinced by, but the real problem to me is this 200 million plus pound midfield that yeah. Chelsea have where all you can say about them really is that they're snapping into challenges, which they certainly were. I mean, certainly Moises Caicedo was snapping into some challenges in there. Uh, Enzo can snap into one. He can make you uncomfortable when he wants to. But neither of them have particularly good range of passing, uh, which is my, you know, the criticism I would level at Wataro Endo on the other side too, Mm -hmm. who I thought snapped in was a physical force where I've questioned his physicality at times. I think he was up for the battle, but the the range of passing is not there. And neither of those Chelsea guys, Enzo, who should be the deep playmaker, uh, like a Hakan Chalanaglu at, at uh, Inter, Inter Milan or some equivalent, they're, they're not getting anything out of those players. And the amount of money that they've spent to have basically the game plan be hope that Cole Palmer drifts into the central positions, the half spaces and and creates a problem or else nothing. I mean, Mm -hmm. that can't be acceptable from a Chelsea perspective. Yeah. And I think it's a misprofile of, um, of midfielders as well for, for Liverpool. When you look at um, Endo McAllister uh, and whoever plays alongside, whether that's Graven Birch um, or if it's, you know, a Harvey Elliott, um, Thiago's always injured. So, I just feel that with the quality that Liverpool have in the forward line means it can paper over those cracks. And, and you're seeing that throughout the season. They're, they're usually outscoring teams. Um, but I think what, what Chelsea really need to do is is just figure out 
a style of play that's going to get the best out of Cole Palmer um, and just there's no one there that can really dictate the tempo of a game for them. That's another thing. They, they're relying on winning the ball back high up the pitch and releasing quickly through Cole Palmer. That's really the only route for, for creating um, opportunities and chances. Yeah, it's strange about the Liverpool forward line because I thought that Luis Diaz was actually very good today and, and had one of his first very good performances of the season. He has had a tough time off the mm. pitch and all of that. Uh, but I don't find some of these Liverpool attackers to be very dangerous. Cody Gakpo, I just don't see it in terms of you know the lethal goal scoring. Darwin Nunez, who's not fit, of course you have those questions about him. I say it every time. I really think it's Mohamed Salah and Diogo Jota. And then a bunch of guys who were kind of mid. I mean, Luis, Luis Diaz mm. could produce better than he has been, and he may get back to a level that's more, uh, that's closer to those other two. But when he was signed, mm. what we were told is that this was the Sadio Mane replacement. I just haven't seen yeah. that. And, and I do think that they're going to live and die by the fitness of Jota and Salah as we get into the real run-in of this title race. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I, I mean, the, the goal today came from from Van Dyke, you know, uh, and, and the other goal that got chalked off, of, um, uh, got disallowed, was, was from Van Dyke as well. Uh, so without their the more prolific forward line, I think it's going to have to come from either set pieces or it's going to have to come through some of their midfield midfield players uh, making those late runs into the box. But Diaz on his day, he can get you a goal. He can be a match winner. Um, Nunez as well, he's just he's just very hit and miss, you know. Um, but Gakpo, I'm also not sure exactly what he is. Is he a number nine? Is he a left forward? Um, is, he, is he better off as a second striker playing off of a number nine? Um, I think he's just an all-round decent player, but I don't, I don't see his main strengths. So um, Liverpool have, have got enough um, and they've continued to, to prove us wrong, unfortunately. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that a lot of it does rest on, on Jota and, and, and Salah, but I think they do have quality errors in the squad that will chip in, in enough goals. Well, at least we get a chance to laugh at Chelsea once again today. We can all be thankful for that. Uh, but there was another big match on this Sunday. It was River, River Plate, Boca Juniors, uh, the Super Classico down in Buenos Aires. Uh, I spoke to Nico Cantor, who, who covered the game uh, from the studio for CBS this weekend uh, for the Football Weekend podcast, which debuted on Friday. Um, and he spoke a lot about the gravity of this match, uh, which I hope people will check out. In the end... You know, watching this, I it spoke to what Nico got at, which is that the, the quality of even this top level of the Argentine domestic game, I think has suffered for the heavy recruitment at younger and younger ages to Europe. Mm -hmm. um, the, these guys are going over, I feel like, earlier and earlier. And you just see some loose touches, some loose passing, not the kind of, you know, more advanced passing moves that you get 20, 25 passes. It's a, it's, you know, a little more direct, a little more over the top, which, which is how a couple of the goals were scored here today. And many of the chances were created, but still a phenomenal atmosphere at El Monumental uh, river plates, home stadium, everything red and white, because there's no away fans allowed. 
Um, and it's just, it's <laughs> such a, you know, festival. It's, it's like a human festival, almost a, a cultural mm. milestone. Every time you see this, this match played. Yeah. It, it's such, it's such a big occasion um, that sometimes the football's kind of taken away from it. Um, and I echo your thought, your thoughts. And um, I do think the quality has dropped a little and you're even seeing that it's, it's the more, it's the older players that you're now seeing going, going back and playing there, you know, Cavani, Romero, these players going back and, you know, finishing off the career there. You know, we, we were seeing Raquel May and, and Aymar and you know, even Tevez at a time playing in these, um, in these games. And these are really hot prospects, you know, um, and I think these games is also there's just so much fouls, so much aggression that there's it's almost not as free flowing as you like or you, you you know you're accustomed to seeing in in European football. But the spectacle, man, it just it takes you back to the heart of what football is, and it is a battle, and you always get that in this game. Yeah, there were a few moments of quality. I thought Fagundo Colidio, uh, he took this the ball really well to pop it around the corner. Uh, with one touch and then volley the proceeds onto the post with Sergio Romero, really statuesque in goal. He didn't move a muscle. Mm. Uh, there, there were a few moments like that, but it was primarily, for me, the experience was the sound, uh, some of the, mm. the histrionics and the theatrical behavior. Um, it's, it doesn't grate <laughs> on me quite as much as it used to in uh, El Clasico, when you would have a lot of flopping this one it, i didn't see as much flopping uh as just legitimate beefs breaking out all over the yeah. pitch and at the end you know the the referee was eager to blow up he was he was eager to blow the final whistle on 94 minutes even though I, there was no doubt among the commentators and i agreed that there would be more time added on to the added on time for the time yeah. wasting and everything but I think the referee was eager to get out of there before he made some mistake or, you know, everybody was going to turn on him. Uh, he blows up almost before 94 minutes, like on the dot, maybe, you know, 59 seconds. Uh, and of course, all that gets him is five or six river players running to him after the final whistle and berating him until a Boca player comes over to berate them, but also grabs him to try and get him away. It, it was a complete mess, but it's sort of, uh, part of the experience, I feel like. Yeah, it must be probably the the most difficult derby or match even to to officiate, uh, and you almost get the sense that the referee, especially in this game, he would kind of let the players sort it out themselves uh, and not go around handing out too many cards. There's quite a few cards in the game naturally, um, but yeah it's almost like look everyone gets a, a couple shoves a couple pushes each and then settle down and let's get back to the game you know so i, yeah, I, I thought the referee did did the best he probably could um and yeah i'm, I'm just glad it, it, there wasn't too much of the you know of the aggression of, of the fighting because we've seen it really blow up in, in you know in previous games um but yeah the, the fanfare the atmosphere it's yeah it almost takes over the actual football game like i said yeah, well, it didn't look good for Boca for most of this game, but their fullback play was pretty good, and uh, Lautaro Blanco broke down the left, uh, found uh, some, his teammate in the box to slap at home, and it did end 1-1. Uh, that did look like the most uh, likely scenario 
towards the end, despite some half chances here and there. Uh, but in the end, it was a testament to what a derby match can offer, regardless of the level, the technical level, uh, which wasn't yeah. terrible, obviously, but it, it just maybe wasn't what it quite used to be in the Argentine league. But it all brought to mm-hmm. mind for me the essential question of what are the biggest derby matches in world football, which would make a good set piece for this week. Uh, Manny, I'm curious, what are your top four uh, derbies across this world of ours? You know what? I think we're blessed in in the Premiership and in, and in England that a lot of the derbies that we watch growing up always seems to be the biggest and, and the most entertaining. Um, so I've tried to take a bit more of a universal outlook. But I have gone with a number four United Liverpool. Um, that being the two most successful clubs in England. Um, they're not, you know, derbies of, you know, two cities in the same, two clubs in the same city, but there has been that competitive rivalry that I think outclipses um, all other yeah, English English teams, you know, um, 20 league titles for United, 19 with Liverpool um, and just that general dislike for our neighbours, um, even though they're not, you know, direct neighbours in the city. Uh, and it's, I've got, I feel like it's my hate for Liverpool is even higher than that city. Um, so I've put them at number four and I just think that some of the games have been incredible. Um, so yeah, put them number four. Number three, I've put the old firm derby. So Celtic versus Rangers. Uh, being the two best clubs in Scotland and constantly battling it out. There's not much other competition anywhere else in the league for them, but I think that deep-rooted religious rivalry as well with Catholic versus Protestant, I think that gives it that extra bite, um, should I say. So that's always been like a a massive one that's even being, you know, English, seeing the, the Scottish talk about that. The second one I've gone for is Real versus Barca. Purely on, I guess, entertainment, um, the glitz, the glamour. They've always notoriously had the best players. You know, it was a chance for us to see all our favourite players playing against each other. And that usually decided the league title, you know, in Spain. Uh, I don't think there was many other two sides that had as many world stars playing at once. Um, in more recent times, it hasn't been as evenly matched. I think that both clubs have gone through transition periods, especially Barcelona at the moment. Um, it's not as much of a contest, but especially during that Ronaldo, Bale, um, Messi, Neymar, that period was amazing. Then you look further back at, you know, Ronaldinho and that glorious moment where the Real fans stood up and clapped for him, which they'd never seen before, you know, at the Bernabeu. So that goes down at number two. And you have to say the number one is River Plate and Boca. Um, I don't think there's any other game that galvanizes a whole city, a whole country, even the way it does. Um, in terms of you know footballing talent, it's not it's not the best. But in terms of rivalry, in terms of passion, um, and just yeah, I guess nothing else really compares to it in that sense. So that would be my top four. Yeah. I'm in agreement with you on a few of these, um, but at number four, mm-hmm. I'm coming in with the North London Derby. I am biased as an Arsenal mm-hmm. man, <laughs> but uh, I think how close the clubs are to each other, the deep history, the 
the, all these wrinkles about Arsenal moving up into Tottenham's neighborhood and then this dispute over who would get a promotion to the first division way back when. Um, you can mm. feel the how deep in people's blood and bones this is. Even though I personally, my biggest animosity is towards Chelsea and Man United, actually, because when I first became a fan in 2006, those were the, the clubs that were mm. torturing me and making me suffer. You know, Didier Drogba, <laughs> Frank Lampard, Jose Mourinho for Chelsea, and then yeah. those Sir Alex sides for United when, you know, Arsene Wenger was running out of steam. Nobody yeah. will ever compare to them for me, but, you know, I, I'm forced to acknowledge that Tottenham is the one. And it, there's just a lot of mm. there's a lot of pageantry of a different variety around that one that I really enjoy. Uh, number three, I have to agree, the old firm. Um, I think it is maybe the scariest ex- outside of another one that we'll get to. Um, there are mm. other rivalries that I wanted to get in here, like the Derby Derby della Mar- Madonnina in uh, Milan, mm. and and there's a lot of fun ones around there. But the old firm is again. The history, the, the social ramifications of it are, are similar to the Super Classico, where there's there are class yeah. elements, uh, deep-rooted social dynamics that make it more than just a footballing rivalry, but then it's also usually quite a good game as well. Uh, number mm-hmm. two is that aforementioned Super Classico for me. Uh, I think it, you know, it might be the wildest, the most explosive, uh, most potentially dangerous when you factor in people's houses getting burned down uh, heading into the 2018 clash that they had or um, you know the the Boca fans pepper spraying river players in the tunnel when they were coming out for the second half at one point Mm -hmm. having to suspend Mm -hmm. and move the second leg of the Copa Libertadores final to Madrid after the Boca bus was attacked and the police responded Mm -hmm. with tear gas that (laughs) that you know, blew up the whole neighborhood and sent people running like a, like it was a war zone. I mean, that is special. But I do think that the technical quality has suffered. Um, and that's what makes El Clasico, although, as you said, that mm-hmm. has suffered too, especially with Barcelona's decline in, in the last couple of years. But there is no bigger game still. There's just no bigger mm-hmm. world event, I think, outside of, the Champions League final and the World Cup final, then some of these big uh, El Clasico matches, especially as you said, that that era that were that was really my coming of age, um, where on one side you had the uh, MSN Messi, Suarez, Neymar; on the other side, Bale, Benzema, Cristiano Ronaldo. The midfield battles there with uh, mm-hmm. Sergio Busquets, Iniesta, Xavi against uh, Modric. Kroos, Casemiro, unbelievably high level. Um, and that's before you even get to the the center backs and the Pepes of the world and their all of their dark <laughs> arts that would get involved in these matches too. There was quite a lot of simulation for a while there. Uh, but nonetheless, it was must-see TV in a way that I, I don't know that anything else has compared in my, my time as a fan. Um, I came around a bit too late for the Galacticos and to see see it live as Ronaldinho got got clapped off the pitch at the Bernabeu. But I just think that there, even now, there's there's nothing that compares. But I do think mm. some of these English rivalries have, have inched closer. I think the North London Derby is yeah. now 
really is must-see TV. Man United-Liverpool, you always have to watch. It's just unfortunate that City is not doesn't bring it out in the same way. We'll have Liverpool and Man City yeah. in a few weeks, and of course, every single person will watch that match. But it's just strange. I don't know. There, there's a... It's not artificial, but there's a robotic element to City that has changed the dynamic at the top of the Premier League. Yeah, with, with City, I feel like it's almost superficial, any rivalry. Um, <clears throat> they haven't had that deep-rooted... You know, e- even with United and City, you know, they've, they've been our rivals, but they've always been so historically below us that it was it was never you know, rivalry against a club that, you know, could win the league from you or or take even three points from you really, you know, it was almost a you know, a, a done game for most of the most of the history, at least the you know, from the Premier League history. Um and then I just feel like their fans don't invoke that passion, you know. You know, there's always the <laughs> the banter that they receive that is, you know, it's called the empty hat and, you know, there's not that, that passion, like I said, at, at the club and the atmosphere is not electric to really, and how many people honestly know a City fan? So, you know, it's, it's this new age of, of TikTokers and, and Twitter or X users that are now, you know, Man City fans. So it, it just hasn't built up that, that history of passion really, especially within our generation. You know, if you look back at, maybe the 60s, 70s, there may be something there. but And, you know, if you are against City, it's only just because they're so good. It's almost a jealousy thing rather than, you know, a hate or a dislike. You don't want them to do well. And, yeah, I think it's one of those. Well, I think their biggest problem is the indifference. You know, the, the it's worse mm. to have people indifferent towards your success than to hate you for it. Um, and we've talked yeah. before about how, Everyone in the U.S. hates the New York Yankees, my team here in the back, in my backyard, because they win, and they win in a way that <laughs> feels like it has deep roots in baseball history. Uh, it feels like it's sprung up semi-organically despite all the money that they've spent because before they spent all the money, they were already the Yankees. Whereas, you know, the <laughs> same can't really be said about Man City. But... Uh, yeah. It's worth moving to the New York Yankees of the Premier League, your Manchester United, mm-hmm. who have fallen <sighs> on tough times again this weekend. They played; they hosted <laughs> Fulham on Saturday, and it ended 2-1 to the visitors. Fulham got their winner in stoppage time and ran out of Old Trafford 2-1 winners. I cannot uh, imagine it was a happy day on the, on the couch at... Manny's casa. No, it was not, Jack. It was not. And I think the worst thing is we've been on a decent trajectory. Uh, and my biggest fear when I heard that Hodgson was going to be out was what is Ten Hag going to do now? Is he going to rejig the whole side, um, affect our, the flow of the forward line? Um, and that's exactly what happened. Or would he be brave enough and keep, you know, Garnacho on the right, Rashford on the left and bring in... Um, Ahmad or, or Forsen or whoever, to be honest, as, as a false nine or in that striker position. Um, and my biggest fear actually was maybe even Anthony coming back into the side, but it was <laughs> it was not a good performance. Um, it was further destabilised by Casemiro's head injury, um, which further made us just look out of shape. And the substitutions of McTominay um, and Ericsson brought nothing to us. Um, having to rely on Harry Maguire to get 
you know, an equaliser. It, I didn't see where we were going to get any goals in that game. Um, there was no foothold in the game, um, and it looked like we were massive gaps again. You know, we 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 seemed to have sorted out our transitional defending and our rest defence quite well recently, and then it just looked like there was there was gaps everywhere. Um, and for me, the loss goes to the manager. Um, Rashford has looked out of sorts as a number nine for numerous, numerous occasions now. Before Ten Hag under Mourinho, you know, under um, Ragnick, you know, Ole's tried it and I just thought he looked disinterested. Garnacho going back to what's potentially his, his preferred position, he just wasn't as effective. Uh, he left the ball behind a couple of times, lose touches. He did seem like our only real outlet to get a goal, had a couple of decent shots on goal, but they were comfortable saves for the keeper. Um, and Omari Forsen coming on for his starting his debut, I thought he did okay. But again, there wasn't much there that I thought would have created anything for us. Um, and yeah, it was a deserved loss, to be honest. So Calvin Bassey got the opener for Fulham. He got two bites at the cherry and smashed in the second one uh, before Harry Maguire equalized. Uh, mm. At that point, did you have confidence with the Old Trafford crowd in pretty good voice, uh, swelling up behind the team a bit? Not exactly Fergie time, but you know maybe some better vibes because United have picked up a few results. Did you have faith at that point that it was going to go in the right direction, even with Rasmus Hoyland out? As, and as you said, you know, United have not played free-flowing stuff all season, but now they lost their cutting edge. Did, did you have faith that they would still find a way? Yeah, unfortunately I did. Um, but I think <laughs> that the result was was justified. Um, I think they thoroughly deserved it. And, and I just think you do have that belief. We've seen it over history so many times, especially when the crowd gets behind us. And I just thought if we put that pressure uh, for that last nine minutes of the added time that was given, you know, we definitely could have could have got a goal there. Um, we, we'd brought on some real aerial presence. Um, obviously, Maguire with, with the equaliser, McTominay was there as well. Um, we even saw Anthony come on as a makeshift fullback to try and give a bit more attacking impetus for us. But... <sighs> That goal we conceded, we have been susceptible to that all season. And I just don't understand why we haven't got it right and why Ten Hag hasn't managed to coach us to be a more well-drilled side. We're just too easy to play against. And that was from the first minute of this game. Well, after that one, it was uh, Man City hosting Bournemouth. But as usual, I did not recommend people tune in for a city match because it's, a, as we all know, a semi-predetermined outcome. Uh, instead, I went for the Bayern Munich RB Leipzig match out of the Bundesliga, primarily because I've been so thoroughly enjoying uh, the fact that Harry Kane has brought Tottenham Hotspur to Bavaria, <laughs> and he brought Eric Dyer with him as well in the January transfer window. Just to make Can't sure. imagine that was anybody else's idea to bring in Dyer. Um, and it looks as if the Tottenham will have fully pervaded uh, Bayern Munich, uh, turning the, the trophy factory into a trophyless institution this season. They did, though, find a way to win late here through Harry Kane, who, mm -hmm. as we know, can score some goals. But before we get into the particulars of this 12, 1230 Eastern time match 
from Saturday. Uh, what are your thoughts on the Tottenhamization of Bayern Munich? It's hilarious. It is absolutely <laughs> hilarious. And it's, I just think it's so sad for, for Kane, only for him as a, as a player, because I value and I rate him so high um, that can you imagine him finishing his career without actually having any trophies and going to the one club that consistently wins? You just can't write a better story than that, to be honest. Um, but the Eric Dyer signing completely came out of nowhere. Um, I don't know what he offers them. Uh, I think there was a lot more players within uh, that was on the market that they could have brought in. Uh, I'm sure they've probably got someone in their youth academy because they have always had quality in, in, their, in their youth ranks that I thought probably could have done the same job, you know. Um, but yeah, <laughs> it, it's not great that he's, they've both come in um, and it's looking like they may not win this Bundesliga. Sacking the manager as well, it's a risky move because as as poorly the last few results they've had, Tuchel is a manager that can win. He has shown it at multiple clubs. Um, but I'm seeing that they've agreed a deal to sign Alonso in the summer. But that's probably going to be off the back of him winning the Bundesliga with, with Leverkusen. Yeah, I'm skeptical too of whether anything is confirmed in terms of in terms of where Alonso's going. I, I do that's one thing that I've never loved about Bayern is that they are always just taking players and coaches off the other teams that compete with them. Mm. So it's not really like they're rising to the top. It's that they're tearing other people's limbs off so that they can't <laughs> climb up with them. Yeah. Uh, that's always bothered me. But it is a testament to, to Harry Kane's Tottenham DNA that, you know, we, we mentioned Pochettino earlier, Mauricio Pochettino, who's, who still has not won a medal in English football. But he did go to PSG, a similar kind of trophy factory, in France and he got he won the league and he I think he won the Coupe de la Ligue or whatever the the French yeah. cup uh he got himself a couple medals Harry Kane he he's a uh, I said the other week that the, the history of the Tottenham is one of the most powerful forces in nature <laughs> uh and it does seem like he has successfully guided Bayern in a, in a whole new direction uh, it is it does crack me up and it's at the, it's to the detriment of Thomas Tuchel, who mm. is one. He's another in this increasingly common arrangement where a, a manager who's lost the faith of the fans, mm. and you know, to varying extents, parts of the dressing room, stays on till the end of the season. I mean, you see this with Xavi at Barcelona, but he's an absolute legend, and I also don't think he's done as badly as no. you know maybe the the press has gone after him. To, at that level that they've gone after him. But, you know, why is Thomas Tuchel staying till the end of the season? Why is this happening all over Europe now after Jurgen Klopp did it in totally different circumstances? It's been this <laughs> wave after that. Yeah, and I've even seen recently, I think it came out today, that managers are looking for a new rule where they can't be sacked unless it, it follows the transfer window. So either in January or the summer. Um, which which would be interesting, um, but I, I'm not sure if that will actually go through. I think, um, yeah, I, I think they'll, they'll need a bit more of a, of a manager's union to, to rise up for that to go through. Um, but yeah, what's happening at, at, at Bayern, it has to be the, the curse of the Tottenham. I, I can't understand where else or why else it's happening because they've got the quality, they've got the far superior players, bringing in a world-class striker like Kane, you know, to replace Lewandowski is 
was brilliant. It was a masterstroke. You know, you were really thinking that this was really their chance to go for the Champions League and win a Champions League again. And it's just looking like the reverse. And and I mentioned a few episodes ago that for a United side as weak as it was at the time, to still get three goals, you know, shows that there are a team that, that it's not as well, you know, as well oiled and, and, and defined as, as we expected it to be. You know, bearing that in mind though, Kane had two fantastic finishes in the game today uh, and, you know, cl- a class will always be permanent and, and you saw that and Musiala made that great first assist as well and um, they were fortunate, I think, to win the game. Um, Leipzig had a, you know, quite a few good chances and, and Sesko is an interesting young striker that I think a lot of clubs will be looking at. Um, he had a decent decent finish for the for the equaliser and he had a similar chance early on in that game where he could have, but it was a good save from Neuer. So, you know, there wasn't much in that game between the two sides. And I think Leipzig even had more more shots on target. But the quality of Kane saw them through. Yeah, I do. As much as I like to have fun with Kane, he is a straight-up baller. Yeah. Uh, not just as a goal scorer, but an assist man, as a link man, dropping in to create the extra man in midfield he can really do anything you could possibly want and when he does do that midfield work it doesn't prevent him from getting into the box and scoring Mm -hmm. just I think I think a better I think he's a superior player to Erling Holland. yeah and I would pick him before Holland for my team but I you know I also I say this about fantasy uh, Premier League but yeah I don't know if you played uh Super Smash Brothers uh N64 but Uh I think I find Holland to be like playing with Kirby <laughs> where it's like way overpowered. Uh, I guess Kane is overpowered, but he feels more human. You know, yeah, he, yeah. he feels like a guy who just works incredibly hard on the training ground uh, to, to be the best that he can be. So he has my respect in that department. And I, I don't I actually I think that they will beat Lazio and, and go through in the Champions League. And I think they have a legitimate chance to win that competition. Mm-hmm. As fun as it is to see them one nil down <laughs> at halftime of that uh, of that tie, yeah. Uh, but that uh, that brings us to the the last match of note this weekend, uh, which was Arsenal hosting Newcastle at the Emirates Stadium. There's a lot going on under the surface of this fixture. Um, I think it's sort of a cultural derby, almost, or a stylistic mm-hmm. derby. There's mm-hmm. a lot of resentment and bitterness between the two sets of fans between the two clubs it's a clash of styles Mm. and also you had all the controversy that when they met earlier in the season where definitely newcastle won the game on one of the most blatant fouls that i've seen in a while with uh gabriel getting shoved into his own goal by joe ellington and it's just not a foul and they they run out winners uh, and all of that was sort of percolating beneath the surface here, along with Arsenal's midweek loss to Porto in the Champions League. They're down 1-0, just like Bayern Munich are after after the first leg. But they came into this and absolutely took care of business. I mean, the commentator on, on the American feed here on NBC said something to the effect of, you know, Newcastle do not know what just hit them. And at that point, it was only 2-0. <laughs> but you thought it, the score could be anything. That said, I was sweating at halftime thinking, oh, they're going to get they're going to get a goal back and then it'll be a different game. But it, they really never got into the match. I mean, Arsenal completely outclassed them across the 90 minutes. 
completely outclassed. That's exactly it. Um, and some of the goals were fantastic. Saka is really, really stepping into that that world class mold. You know, the debate is whether he's there now or not. Um, but he's letting his football do the talking. And I think a, a big mention should go out to Jorginho. Every time he stepped into this Arsenal side, you've seen a different player to to the one that we're seeing in his final season at, at Chelsea. You know, he's taken on a lot more responsibility offensively. You know, this is a, a World Cup winner that's playing, you know, in, in this side. And he's really showing and, and keeping that composure in midfield and picking out the passes that he did, you know, the, the ball into Martinelli, who then boxed it for Havertz for, I think, the second goal was brilliant play from him. And just throughout the game, you know, he, was, he wasn't caught out in possession. He kept things tidy. Um, he was bringing players into, you know, into play. And whenever he plays, I do love seeing Declan Rice being a bit further forward and just making a few more runs. Um, I think he's unstoppable either way. You know, if he's running back towards goal to, to you know, mop up uh, any half chances or, 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 you know, plug any holes in, in the midfield or when he's driving forward and carrying a team. Um, and Odegaard, he's just pure class. You know, he's his intricate passing, the way he can just thread balls in tight spaces. Um, he uses his body as well, his balance. It's... To be honest with you, this Arsenal side is really, really looking good. Um, and they're blowing teams away. And it's it's unstoppable. That's exactly it. You can't really do much about it. You just have to hope that some of their players are off. And, you know, when you have a side that's playing such good free flow and open football and then so um, decisive and, and can capitalise on set pieces the way they do, every game they look like they can score from the set piece. It's You really got to think of how do you beat this Arsenal side when they're in this kind of form. Yeah, I... Uh... I got to say that for all the great goals that Arsenal scored, in, including Kai Havertz, who it's always good to see him get on the team sheet, because uh, the score sheet, because people are just going to ride him until he puts up 10, 15 goals a season. Mm. Uh, but I, one of the biggest cheers of the day, of Saturday, along with when Fulham scored, sorry, Manny, but I thoroughly <laughs> enjoyed that. The other... <laughs> The other time was when I saw the team sheet and Loris Karius was on there because Martin Dubravka had come down with an illness. Sorry to Martin, it's not about him. To me, I was cackling at the prospect of Loris Karius lining up on the other side for the first time, I think, since 2018 he hasn't played uh, in English football. Uh, he actually wasn't bad. He made some good stops, but the the ball was just flying past him left and right. Yeah. Uh, did not really have much of a chance. And I think, I mean, you highlighted a couple of the pillars of my case for why Arsenal can win this division. Uh, I think if you look at the raw statistics, you don't need to go into advanced XG stuff. <laughs> they have the fewest goals conceded, the best goal difference now after they scored 21 goals in three matches or whatever. Uh, and they are the best set-piece team in mm -hmm. the league. So those three things, best defense, best goal difference now that they're scoring, and they can open up games, break them open by getting Gabriel, who is the, the top-scoring center back since he joined this division, which I think we touched on a couple weeks ago. Yeah, He was not the only one, though. Uh, Jakub Kivior got in on it yeah. as well. But that's the best way to deal with these low blocks is Arsenal are going to play the whole game in their opponent's third, or that's what they're trying to do. They're going to get a lot of corners. 
can they capitalize on those set pieces to break the game open? Then Newcastle have to come out more than they want to, and they're going to get ripped apart because they can't play with Arsenal. So those three things in tandem, the fact that they're keeping people out and they're not dependent on intricate combination play around the top of the box, which was the hallmark of the, the Arsene Wenger later years where it was either you pull people apart with some fantastic play in there, or you got nothing because you Mm. got no, you got no physicality. You're not winning the the set piece battles. You're not really an aerial threat. I mean, even Kai Havertz, he wins a lot of headers. He does. He also works incredibly hard off the ball, which, you know, you're never going to see the TV pundits talk about. It's just like goals and assists and whether the vibes are good, (laughs) but he, he, the reason that, uh, Mikel Arteta bottom is for his off the ball play as much as anything. I think he gets around the pitch really well, puts a lot of pressure on the uh, opposition. I think he deserves respect. And I think the whole team is phenomenal off the ball. I mean, that's why they're not conceding goals. Declan Rice is obviously the, the he's become the keystone of that. He sits mm. in the center of it. Um, but there, I think their case is strong to really compete. They just have to go to the Etihad and beat Man City. There's just no excuses at this point. You need to go there. If it's 1-0, fine. Mm. If, you know, you resort to some Sergio Busquets El Clasico hijinks <laughs> to do it, I don't care. But they need to go there and beat Man City as much because they'll come at, then they'll come out of that match and say, well, we really can win the league now. Yeah. But I think they have to go there and say, we are better than you at every aspect of the game, which at least statistically right now, they have been the best team in the division in those key metrics. Yeah, and that was actually going to lead to my question and, and ask you where do you think Arsenal may falter this season? Um, I think they've learned a lot from last season and I don't think a simple injury, um, even if it's to Saliba, that I think will derail you guys the way it did last season. Um, but looking at it now, I just think you do need to beat those those teams in and around you. Um, unfortunately you haven't got to play Liverpool again I don't believe but City United um, Chelsea um, those those are games that you really need to stamp your authority the way you're dispatching teams um, you know they're from 7th 8th below you need to do that you know with, with people around you obviously United and, and Chelsea aren't but they're still big games that can especially away from home um, can falter your season uh, but the biggest one is going to be that City game. And it's more so for the belief and the mental side of what it does for your title charge uh, more than just the three points. You know, it's almost worth six points, that that kind of result. Um, you know, touching on Newcastle, you're right. You mentioned that you think they may they may slip down further um, this season and not get that top six. Um, and from that performance, um, their goalkeeping situation is, is a worry because... Karius is he's poor his handling is very poor he can instinctive saves he can do um, but even from the couple of goals that he conceded I think in better position and better handling he could have got a stronger hand to it and um, but yeah it's just Newcastle just don't seem as cohesive in their play and it was good to see Joe Willett come back I, I think he's a really good player um, he's a good goal scoring midfielder and you know, it was nice that the moment he had some of the Arsenal players at the end of the game and he swapped shirts with Saka. Um, but I think they are, they're looking like a struggling side and they just, there just doesn't seem to be the belief in the way they were playing. I don't think they really thought that they could outmatch Arsenal. It was really about trying to get into their faces, but 
Arsenal were just popping it around and they couldn't get close. Yeah, I do like beating Newcastle as almost as much as the, the Chelsea's of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's something about them that I, you know, playing them off the park as we did here just felt like some cosmic justice. I, I don't mm-hmm. think that we necessarily deserve to win the game at St. James's Park, but certainly didn't deserve to lose, to lose it no. on that kind of a goal. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, when they showed that pregame, it just, I, I think I had blocked that out. I did a match <laughs> preview for the football weekend and I didn't even mention that incident because I think I literally blocked it out because it was so enraging and just watching it back again he's got the two hands in the back in the back I've yeah. never seen such a blatant foul anyway we don't need to get back into that <laughs> I think to answer your question from earlier what could stop Arsenal I think their schedule I think mm-hmm. Liverpool have the easiest schedule in the run-in uh they really don't they have they have Man City at home uh, which is a big advantage. They got to go to Everton, but you know the Merseyside derby ain't what it used to be. They have to go to Man United. Um, they got to go to West Ham, which might not be that tough. Tottenham go to Anfield, and they got to go to Villa for the second to last match of the season. But Arsenal's uh, got a significantly more difficult schedule, mm-hmm. I would say. They, they have Chelsea at home. Then they have to go to Man City. They got to go to Brighton. Mm-hmm. They play Villa again. They have to go to Tottenham, which is, you know, yeah. you just never know what you're going to get. And then second to last match of the season, Arsenal have to go to Man United. Mm. Uh, and, you know, regardless of how well United are playing at that stage, Old Trafford is going to be up for the opportunity yeah. to deny Arsenal. Because I that, again, I mean, yeah. I, I think that, you know, you could speak to this, but I think United fans care more about Arsenal than they do about City at this point. Yeah. I mean, most fans would rather see City win it. Yeah, it's it's actually a a big a big debate, um, and I'm just thinking, especially for London United fans, um, you know, Arsenal rivalry has always been a bit bigger than the City one. Like I said, not many people <laughs> know a City fan unless you are from from Manchester, you know. Um, but <sighs> United, I, I I don't see I don't see us mounting much of a challenge um, in that game. I, I think especially if top four is resting on, on that kind of game. I, I just, I'm not overly confident. Um, in terms of the fixture list, especially the further you go into Champions League, I think if you do get knocked out by Porto, that may help you in the league. Um, the further you go in that competition, it may make it a bit, bit more difficult. Um, and you need to utilise your squad. And, and I think that may be where you lack is, is the depth in quality, um, you know, with people like... Um, in Ketia and Nelson, um, I think Trossard and Smith Rowe are definitely good, good deputants to come on um, or understudy. Sorry for for some of the first team players. Um, Kiwio definitely stepped up. Um, I didn't think he had the ability that he's showing. Um, so, and potentially a a Timber coming in, you know, for the last the last stretch of the season, it seems like Partey is, is disappeared and is not coming in. So, those those is really well, I think maybe the only tri- uh, trip up is, like you said, is going to be the fixture list. And if you can compete on both the Premier League and the Champions League front, and which will take precedence for Arteta. Yeah, I mean, people talk about Liverpool being ravaged by injuries, Tottenham, Newcastle, but Arsenal have had quite a few. I mean, Tomiyasu, Zinchenko, Thomas Partey, Urien Timber have all been out a lot this yeah. season. Um, it's been better farther up the team, but Gabriel Jesus can't stay fit. So that is the big, that's the other big question. Can Arsenal get those players back for assuming that they put it together in the second leg? 
mm. when the quarterfinals of the Champions League come around. If, inshallah, the, the <laughs> semifinals come around, uh, you need a lot more players that are fit to play than they currently have. Yeah. And, of course, Man City don't have any of these issues anymore. They got all their players <laughs> back just in time. I mean, I'm sure I'm forgetting somebody who's out for them, but really, you don't even notice with that squad. There's no mm. question about their depth and you know they don't have the easiest schedule but i don't know i think they're still the prohibitive favorites they, they have to go to anfield and that's coming up quick yeah uh they have to host arsenal they host villa they have to go to tottenham mm-hmm. uh but m- other they than that they well. don't really have a lot yeah, yeah they, they don't have a lot standing in their way so i don't know i'm i'm worried that it's going to be the same old story this season but I'd rather see Liverpool do it if it's not Arsenal. Yeah, yeah, likewise. Um, oh, actually, I don't know. I was going to say, <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure, because that Liverpool winning a 20th title, it's going to be tough. Uh, but I think I could probably stomach it on a day-to-day easier than Arsenal winning it. You know, I've got my family that are all Arsenal fans, you know, a lot of, a lot of friends, colleagues are Arsenal fans, so... You know the band I'm going to receive for that for the following season will be very very difficult to manage. Um, but I just think I'll I'll like to have the protection. I would like to protect uh, Ferguson's legacy. So City not winning, you know, four champ uh, Premier Leagues in a row, um, and not catching up to his twentieth title. So I think overall in history wise, uh, probably Arsenal just edges it for me that I prefer to win. Well, we'll see if it comes down to that May 11th clash at Old Trafford. Maybe mm-hmm. United will be going for the top four, Arsenal for the title. Although, I don't know, your your faith may have been shaken by this weekend <laughs> in that. But we'll have to see. Um, looking forward to, we're approaching the run-in here. So yeah. we'll be back next week for the next stage of said run-in. But until then, Manny, have a great week. And you too, Jack, man. Good to catch up. Sweet scene.